You are listening to Public Affairs Programming on WERU Community Radio. Today we are bringing you a panel discussion about the state of civil rights in Maine, part of Eastern and Central Maine's 2022 Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration, co-hosted by the Greater Bangor Area Branch of the NAACP and the University of Maine Alumni Association. Moderator John Diamond, president of the University of Maine Alumni Association, introduces the panel. Let me introduce the panelists, and I'll do so in alphabetical order. The first is Tribal Ambassador Molly and Dana of Penobscot Nation. Molly Ann is from Indian Island and is a graduate of the University of Maine, class of 2006. I have to do a shout out there. Among her many, many leadership and public service roles, uh, Ambassador Dana is co-chair of Maine's Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial Indigenous and Tribal Populations. I'm sure we'll be talking more about that. We're also joined today by State Representative Richard Evans. Representative Evans is also known as Dr. Evans. He practices medicine in Dover-Foxcroft, where he lives. Uh, Representative Evans is a decorated veteran of the Air Force and is the past president of the Maine Medical Association. David Patrick joins us today as well. David is a community case manager with Alliance Case Management, a social service agency. In addition, he's also a DEI consultant and the co-founder of Racial Equity and Justice, which is a not-for-profit organization based in Bangor. Uh, He's also the vice president of the Greater Bangor Area Branch of the NAACP. And I also need to point out that David, too, is a University of Maine graduate. And last, but certainly not least, is State Representative Rachel Talbot Ross of Portland. Uh, She spent more than two decades as Portland's Director of Equal Opportunity and Multicultural Affairs. She was the president of the Portland branch of the NAACP. She was chairperson of the Maine State Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And she is currently the Assistant Majority Leader of the Maine House of Representatives. She, like uh, Ambassador Dana, co-chairs Maine's Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Tribal Populations. Okay, so let's get started uh, to the panel. You just heard the Attorney General's thoughts on the state of of civil rights in Maine. So let's take a deeper dive into the topic. He covered, uh, I think, in good stead, uh, some of the strengths of Maine civil rights protections and practices. Interested in having a conversation about how those are working, especially where the gaps are as they pertain to the interests the needs of marginalized and disadvantaged people and communities in Maine. Perhaps we could start with uh, Ambassador Dana. Again, it should be, uh, I encourage you all just to have a conversation about this. Uh, sure. Thanks, John. And uh, thank you, Attorney General, for that great setting the stage for this discussion. And it's so good to be amongst my fellow panelists today. I admire you all very, very much. So great to be here. And uh, I think My role today would be to focus in on on the tribal sovereignty matters in the state of Maine, and they are complicated and they are messy. And it comes from a history of, you know, I think Attorney General said it very well when he said this is really an issue about trust. And when talking about the state of Maine and the tribal nations in Maine, there's been an enormous lack of trust. And that leads us to to the situation we're in today. I do think it is correct to say that we are having some some good dialogue around this at the state level. We've made 
some great progress in the last couple of years. And I think that that progress, none of us can take credit for it. We're really standing on the shoulders of folks, you know, throughout this past 40 years since the 1980 Act and and further um, longer ago, folks that, that were not even at the same table together, you know, trying to advocate for these tribal rights. And I, I was in a meeting last week, so I won't take credit for this statement, but a good friend of mine said it, that the tribes in Maine ha- really haven't experienced true equity or, or real civil rights since that 1980 Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act. And, uh, you know, Attorney General was right when he said that the attitude at the time was kind of this, okay, we've dealt with this issue. Um, Just to give a little bit of background, the tribes in Maine, you know, discovered that roughly two thirds of the state had been illegally taken because the treaties you know, when Maine left Massachusetts and, and, and took all this land from the tribes, those treaties were never ratified by the federal government as they should have been under the Non-Intercourse Act. So there was a lawsuit, uh, the tribes and the federal government versus the state of Maine. The, the result is this, you know, document that lives in infamy, <laughs> the 1980 Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act and, and Implementing Act for, for in Maine. This, I was not alive at the time, but the negotiators from the tribes, you know, I think it's important to say that this this document, you know, a lot of people say very negative things about it, you know, and so that it's undermined our sovereignty. And we can certainly get into all that. And that's all very valid. But the, the tribal negotiators at the time were told that this could be amended in the future if it wasn't working. And they were also, you know, dealing with our tribal communities that were living in a lot of poverty, experiencing a lot of trauma. Uh, When you try to rebuild your communities from, you know, colonization, attempted genocide, land theft, uh, theft of children, that's, you know, that that will echo through the generations. And that's not an easy thing to heal from. So when you have the tribal negotiators looking at this settlement of, you know, you will get resources into your communities, you will get money to buy back land from the federal government. Um, There is some troubling language in here, but we can work on that in the future. That's where the, where the tribal leaders were at, I think. And I think a lot of this agreement to this um, settlement was, was coming from a really good place and a love for the people. Where we are today is that the reality of the Settlement Act has really, you know, served to treat the tribes as municipalities in Maine instead of sovereign tribal nations. And this has been done through a few different avenues, you know, some jurisdictional challenges, um, you know, the the blocking of the tribes to access federal Indian law and and acts at the federal level that will benefit tribes. There's been roughly 150 of those acts passed since uh, 1980. And all of that has caused chaos, tension, litigation, and and I don't think anybody enjoys it. (laughs) I would hope not. So, So I do think there's an appetite for moving beyond this, but for the tribes, the only meaningful way to do that is to amend that settlement act uh, and to really take serious the work of a lot of lawmakers, uh, the attorney general's office, the governor's office, tribal leaders, all these people who've been at the table for the past couple of years and and really look at at what the tribes need and see the tribes as capable, capable sovereign nations. And thankfully we have a great vehicle to do this in LD 1626, which is legislation uh, sponsored by Assistant Majority Leader Rachel Talbot Ross, who seems to be my um, colleague in, in many instances these days, which I'm super thankful for. And, and we're so 
fortunate to have her in this fight with us. And in this act is the, the result of the work of a task force, you know, convened by the legislature, really looking at uh, that 1980 act, looking at federal Indian law and seeing how to best move forward together. So I think as far as civil rights and tribal sovereignty and, and equity when it comes to tribal nations in Maine, we have to be looking at that 1980 act. We have to be taking into account uh, how history has unfolded since then. And I think we all have to be you know, respectful uh, of the tribal wishes and needs. And, and you know, this is painfully true for me every day. My role of ambassador exists because our representative was removed from the legislature by our people. So, you know, this is is heavy on me every day as I do this work that, you know, the only reason I'm in this role is because we have come to the table as a sovereign and we really need to be treated that way. Great. Thanks so much. Others? John, um, I would add um, one consideration for those who um, are thinking about this issue as Ambassador Dana has has wonderfully uh, described, and that is that um, we have amended the United States Constitution 27 times because we understand the evolving nature of our democracy. Ridiculous in many ways, I would say, that we would not be able to amend the Settlement Act um, to reflect and restore uh, sovereignty. So if we can if we can amend the United States Constitution, understanding that that's an evolving document uh, to live up to the best of our human potential and our democracy, then I would dare say to the people of Maine uh, and to the governor of the state of Maine that there is no reason why we should not be able to amend uh, the Settlement Act and restore sovereignty so that the federally recognized tribes here in the state of Maine will be on parity and, and enjoy the privileges, powers, the duties, and the immunities that are afforded to over 500 other federally recognized tribes um, in the United States. That's a big, that issue is such a big part of the gap that exists in Maine uh, in terms of uh, the state of civil rights and equity. Would others like to address some of the other issues where you see gaps, whether it's in law enforcement, whether it's in health care, whether it's in uh, protections, again, of uh, underserved and uh, uh, often undervalued populations? Uh, John, uh, I would like to kind of weigh in. First of all, I want to uh, thank all of the members of the panel for, for agreeing to be a part of this uh, celebration. And thank you, uh, Attorney General Fry, for your work, and I'm glad you're in that position. I think that we have to address the elephant in the room. That elephant, I think uh, Ambassador Dana has kind of hit on it already. I took the opportunity to look at the report uh, from June 30th, uh, 2020, the first report, I think probably that was released by the uh, Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial indigenous and uh, main tribal uh, populations. So a lot of work has been done. There's a lot of good work. But realizing um, that we are celebrating and honoring um, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, birthday, we have to also recognize the fact that uh, he often talked about institutional and structural racism. In his words, uh, true racial 
equity, uh, equality cannot be reached without radical structural changes in our society. And I think therein lies the problem. The problem that persists even today is acknowledging that we have a problem and dedicating ourselves to rectify that problem. I'm excited about the work that's been done by Ambassador Dana and, Dr. and uh, Representative uh, Rachel uh, Talbot-Ross, as well as uh, Attorney General Aaron Fry. But I think it's important that the public realizes that the first step for us is to give an honest account of our nation's history, something that many refuse to do even today. When I say the word uh, racism, I am talking about a system. I'm not talking about an individual character flaw, a personal moral failing, or even a psychiatric uh, illness that some people have suggested. I'm talking about a system of power, a system of structured opportunity that assigns a value to a person or a group of people. It is widely understood that racism unfairly disadvantages many individuals and many communities, but it shouldn't take us long to recognize that every unfair advantage has its reciprocal unfair advantage. By its design, racism is institutional and systemic, and it is unfairly ad advantaging some individuals and communities at the expense of so many others. Certain uh, people, certain groups of people and certain communities are marginalized by this design. Institutional racism is embedded in the laws and regulations of a society and in our society and manifests itself as discrimination in areas such as criminal justice, employment, housing, healthcare, education, and political representation. We are seeing this structural design being implemented across the nation today. A good example of this marginalization is evident even more so today as 19 states have already passed anti-voting legislation. So when I think of uh, racism, I think of it in terms of three different uh, levels. The first is institutional. Uh, this is a form of racism that's uh, manifested in differential uh, access to the goods, services, and opportunities of society by race. Healthcare is just one example. Other examples include uh, access to quality housing, education, employment opportunities, and a clean environment. Personally, mediated racism is another uh, form of racism. And this form of racism is more commonly known as prejudice and discrimination. A form of racism where prejudice means differential assumptions about the abilities, motives, and intentions of others according to their race and discrimination which translates into differential actions towards others according to their race. This form of racism is what most people think of when they hear the word racism. Somebody did something to somebody else. Examples of this racism can be found in the form of police brutality, shopkeeper harassment, and minority customers, and also in healthcare. 
And for physicians, it could include fairly subtle yet biased actions such, such as not giving the full range of treatment options because we might assume that the patient cannot afford that treatment but cannot comply with or understand that treatment. And finally, there's what is described as internal racism. And this means when members of the stigmatized races accept negative messages about their own abilities and intrinsic worth. Examples of, it, of internalized racism include self-devaluation, feeling that maybe I'm not as good or maybe I shouldn't try to graduate from high school or apply to that college or try to become a physician or try to live in that neighborhood. The current use of the terms race and racial have uh, developed because of the false notions of racial differences have become embedded in the generational, generational disbeliefs and behaviors of our society. This false belief of white supremacy has developed over many centuries and has continued throughout many generations and is especially directed towards blacks, other people of color and, is, and members of main tribal nations. There are stereotypes about white minority ethnic groups where there's prejudice and discrimination. However, this is more akin to xenophobic prejudice rather than racism. To be clear, although Maine is generally characterized as an overwhelmingly white state, structural racism still exists, especially among our immigrant population. Racism affects the health of all people, especially people of color and other marginalized communities in our societies. So as leaders in our communities, we have a responsibility to not only acknowledge and understand the impact of structural racism, but to speak out against racial injustices wherever they exist. We must, as a state, recognize not only as a state, but as a country, we must recognize that there is an urgent threat to public health and actively work in partnership with others to dismantle racist and discriminatory policies across all spectrums, including but not limited to corporate boardrooms, individual professions, including health professions, academia, and our educational systems. Now, I have um, served as the chair of the New England delegation to the American Medical Association, and I am the senior delegate to the American Medical Association and have been representing Maine for the last uh, 20 years. This issue of racism and inequality injustice has been front and center in just about all of our discussions at the American Medical Association. We have established uh, uh, an American Medical Association Center for Health Equity that uh, has taken the mantle from uh, uh, groups that had been doing this internally. Likewise, uh, we have made this a 
prime primary uh, uh, topic as far as training physicians in Maine through the Maine Medical Association. So my point is that this is affecting all of us across the board and we can never take it for granted. And we have to commit to ourselves as individuals that we wanna make things better, that we can make things better and we should and go ahead and do it. David. Yeah, I'll jump in here. Um, so I, I offer a, a little bit different of a perspective, uh, not you know officially working in, in state government or any of those roles. Um, I'll double back a little bit to I think what's been working, uh, you know, similar to what Attorney General Frey said and Dr. Evans, uh, especially with momentum and responsibility as it pertains to you know institutional and structural racism. I think what has been working is the increased platforms that have been provided uh, to. You know, our most underrepresented and marginalized community members, whether it's advisory committees, panels, commissions, other other settings, the ability for our communities to engage in decision making in government operations and to be able to even be considered to share things like impact statements or to make proposals to legislation, not after the legislation has been enacted, but, but at the forefront, right? As being, being able to engage and being sought after in that decision-making process, I think is working, right? We, whether uh, we were hearing from Malian, our own national civil rights um, legislation, like all of these things are evolving, right? The more we hear from communities, the more we hear about the gaps, um, the more we hear about what needs to be improved and what impacts are are really affecting different communities. So I, I think in short, that is certainly what's worked, what's always worked, but not what's always been available or receptive. Up until recently, like Attorney General Frey said, with with a recent momentum and responsibility, our communities have not always been listened to. Your, your reference to the racial impacts statements that the legislature is going to be piloting this year is fascinating. And I think it fits in with everything that we've been talking about, the impact on, well, all citizens. Representative Talbot Ross, this is your initiative. Would you explain to folks how that works and how it uh, because and is this the first state to adopt such a, a plan well thank you uh, again uh, John very very much I want to um, just add my thanks um, as others have to the University of Maine uh, to the Alumni Association and most definitely to the Greater Bangor area NAACP and before I answer that I just want to um, pay tribute to a matriarch um, and an elder of mine who I have learned um, great life lessons, um, particularly um, those um, fighting for civil rights uh, here in Maine. And, and that is we recently lost uh, a champion of civil rights here in Maine, uh, Janet Johnson, who uh, for many know this day, um, Martin Luther King holiday because of her work. If she were here, uh, with us. Um, sadly, she passed, uh, she would say happy 93rd birthday to Dr. Martin Luther King. And she would acknowledge that this year, 36 years after the national holiday um, became 
law that we are still scarred, uh, as uh, Representative Evans articulated, uh, with the with racism. I I I believe what she probably would have added to the ambassador's remarks is what Dr. King called the urgency of now. Dr. King, in a sermon, you know, challenged all of us not to try to see what may be uh, done two and three and five and 10 years from now, but take up the mantle and really make change now. And I wanna just highlight that LD 1626 that restores tribal sovereignty is an example of the urgency of now. As we uh, talk about uh, what can be done, I'm really, really proud that the Maine State Legislature uh, took the step uh, to pilot what we call racial impact statements uh, into the deliberative process of public policy. A racial impact statement uh, is very similar um, to an environmental impact statement or fiscal impact statement in which it measures whether or not a proposed uh, bill or law what the what the outcome would be if it was adopted. And so in this case, uh, racial impact statements measure whether a disparity um, would be uh, heightened, would it if it would stay the same or if uh, the proposed bill would lessen or mitigate um, the disparities, the historical disparities. And this is across all systems. Uh, the Maine State Legislature in this year, in this particular term of the 130th, 130th legislature is uh, looking at seven different bills to, to pilot this analysis. Uh, after this term, we will um, look at the value of a racial impact statement, and then um, hopefully in the 131st legislature, we would institutionalize racial impact statements across um, all systems. To answer your question, John, we have uh, Maine has taken a very big step forward in looking at the use of racial impact statements across uh, various systems. We're not the first to do it. Uh, many uh, municipalities and states are using racial impact statements, but it's been relegated really to the criminal justice system. Uh, it hasn't permeated into the other areas uh, such as labor and housing, education, the justice system, health and human services. And that's an area that Maine can be proud is that we're looking at the use of these statements uh, so that we can mitigate the vestiges of, of racism through uh, ending those disparities and not passing another bill, not creating another law in this state that does not help move us forward in the way in which Dr. King has reminded us about the urgency of, of now. Thank you. A couple of the other things that we had talked about before, and this is something I know people might need to understand a little better, is the role of the permanent commission that is chaired by Representative Talbot Ross and Ambassador Dana. That seems to have uh, a significant impact on public policy in Maine, or can have at least, going forward in the state. Could you folks address that? Talk a little bit about what you see its purpose Obviously, there was a, well, we know that there was the report that came out, but how is this going to, in a more holistic way, address the shortcomings that exist currently in public policy and practices and uh, civil rights in Maine? Maybe, Ambassador, could you start with that? Sure, I'll go first, and I'm sure the representative can fill in a lot. <laughs> She uh, lives and breathes the Permanent Commission, for sure. Uh, so the Permanent Commission 
is something I'm really proud to be a part of. And, um, you know, we advise all three branches of government. We have the um, authority to submit legislation. As you all know, we've reviewed a lot of legislation and and worked collaboratively with lawmakers. Uh, We also can hold public hearings. We've had our first kind of public listening session already that we managed to hold over Zoom. And I think it was a great success. And that's really in part to uh, the staff we've been able to bring on board. Uh, We have some really key uh, positions in place. We have an acting executive director and, uh, and being able to you know, be supported in a financial way by by the state uh, and really prop the commission up has led to, you know, so many more possibilities for us, I think. You know, we have very active subcommittees doing work, you know, legislative things and, um, you know, community outreach work and finance and operations. So we're really getting to be a very sophisticated organization. Uh, we're doing a lot of statutory work on bills that passed last session. And uh, I'm really excited to see where we go. You know, we're looking at disparities in healthcare. We're looking at, at tribal rights. We're looking at what legislation we'd like to weigh in on. And uh, and I think we're really coming into our own and and feeling out what that influence will be. And, and I think it's so significant because we've always had people of color in Maine. We've always had underrepresented populations. Uh, I don't know if we've ever been you know, at this level in government, you know, being formed and united together while also taking into account um, the variety of our different experiences and journeys that we all bring to this commission. So it's uh, it's super exciting work. We could probably host another three hour <laughs> Zoom just talking about all the details of what we're doing, but uh, I'll, I'll leave the rest to representative. Thank you, Ambassador Dana. And I want to thank the Attorney General for for highlighting the permanent commission um, as one of the uh, ways that we've taken a step forward here in the state to address historical generational um, disparities. But uh, just to add to Ambassador Dana's um, remarks, the one uh, piece that um, we're particularly proud of is the fact that for the first time in um, Maine's history, the issue around systemic racism, again, as Representative Evans has um, described this morning is front and center at the policy level. Um, That is unprecedented. Um, We, uh, I I will say as a ninth generation uh, African-American Mainer, it's always felt up until this time that while we have taken steps forward in looking at equality and equity and justice, um, as Dr. King has said, uh, we take one step forward only to take uh, several steps backward. And all of the work that has gone on under the umbrella of diversity and inclusion and um, has not um, resulted in any changes um, systemically and has not decreased disparities and has not interrupted uh, institutional racism. So for the establishment of the Permanent Commission, which is now about two years old, Um, We have the ability, as Ambassador Dana has said, to advise all three branches of government on our own terms. Uh, The Permanent Commission is comprised of 17 members that represent different populations of people, including four tribal representatives. Uh, It represents different components of um, our system, both economic, political, and social. Uh, And 17 individuals um, get to determine on their own, independently, um, how Uh, the state of Maine um, can move forward. Uh, So we're very, very proud that after two years, 
we exist. Um, we do not speak for the state while we exist within the state government structure. We are proud to have been partially funded by the state legislature. And in addition to what Ambassador Dana added, advising three branches of government, being able to um, sponsor our own legislation at any time during the legislative process. Um, the other piece of work that we're proud to, to launch um, and to be partners with scholars at the Cutler Institute um, is a truth-seeking, truth-telling um, reconciliation process. Uh, this year, uh, we will take nine months to design a truth-telling, truth-seeking process with the help of those who um, created and established the TRC process uh, within uh, the Wabanaki State Child Welfare System. Esther Ann and Panthea um, Burns, are leading that work with the permanent commission. And John, I dare uh, say that that will be some of the most groundbreaking work uh, that we believe that the state of Maine can take because it's not about um, just brown and black people here in the state of Maine. It is about all Mainers. It's about reconciling the truth of our history in order to move forward uh, today. So we're very proud of the permanent commission. And for those who would like to know uh, more, uh, certainly we'll um, have information uh, for you, but it is a, a big step forward in addressing systemic racism in the state of Maine, led by those who have been most harmed generationally um, from the vestiges of slavery and colonialism. So thank you. You are listening to a discussion of the state of civil rights in Maine on WERU Community Radio. Panelists for this discussion are Molly and Dana, Tribal Ambassador, Penobscot Nation, Richard Evans, MD, also Maine State Representative, David Patrick, Racial Equity and Justice Educator, and Rachel Talbot Ross, Assistant Majority Leader, Maine House of Representatives. Moderator John Diamond, President of the University of Maine Alumni Association, continues with the questions for the panel. We have a question here that I'd like to share, and I'd like to first direct it to David and then ask others to weigh in as you see fit. The question is, are you concerned that the annual Martin Luther King Day celebration in Maine and across the country celebrates the remarkable Dr. King and celebrates feeling good about him, but it doesn't necessarily engage risk-taking, difficult resistance and the struggles that were central to his life? David, because I know not only are you a social worker, you're also a DEI educator, and I'm sure you've been challenged by this question, as have many others. Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, so right, so we, we ask this every year, right? This is this is the annual question that that we ask. We we look at we look at Dr. King, we look at uh, his legacy, we look at the compilation of civil rights um, in contemporary society and kind of the historical legacy of what Rachel touched on of uh, colonization, slavery, genocide, um, you know, harm and, you know, destruction. Really, um, I think kind of symbolic with the new year. I personally look at the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday celebration as a catalyst for, for the, the rest of the year, right? I think um, it aligns perfectly with um, the legislative sessions. Um, it aligns perfectly with the, the academic calendar and um, a lot of other kind of um, significant points in our calendar. So yeah, I, I think is a celebration in that 
we do need to take time, right? I think, um, especially in our current um, our current state, we focus more on, on health and healing and, and wellness and things like that. So I think there's there's a great opportunity to celebrate. I think this is the appropriate time to do it. But certainly, this should be used as as a galvanizer to energize and encourage others for the work that needs to be done for the rest of the year. Dr. Evans, there's a question here that I think would be, even though it's not specifically directed to you, I think you are in a great position to respond. And it talks about the need for more diversity in state government, in the medical field, and in educational institutions in order to create a a better atmosphere in all three, since you dabble in all three more than dabble in it. you have any thoughts on that? What what should we be doing and and why why is it important that we have more diversity? Thank you, John. Um, I look at it from the standpoint that diversity and inclusion benefits us all. And I think David hit on some key points. The the other aspect is that the commission uh, led by uh, Ambassador Dana and, and Representative uh, Talbot Ross, they're doing wonderful work. They have taken a giant leap forward, and that needs to continue. Reverend um, Dr. Martin Luther King and the members who participated in the civil rights movement also took giant steps. But somehow we have not progressed as fast uh, as I would expect us to have progressed. And I don't think that it's fair to put the weight of everything that is uncorrected on the shoulders of Ambassador Dana and Representative Talbot Ross. They are going to do what they need to do, and that's wonderful. My concern is the rest of the people. And I think that Dr. King would want the rest of the people to be involved. It wasn't just Black people in the civil rights movement. took members of the white community, members of all different uh, races, religions, affiliations, to get that movement started. And I am not certain that Dr. King would be happy with where we are today. The reason that I say that is I was thinking about the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which was passed way back in 1868, that granted citizenship to all persons born or naturalized in the United States, including formerly enslaved people. Then we had the Equal Rights Amendment that prohibited uh, protected individuals against discrimination on the basis of sex, gender, and sexual orientation. Then we had the women's right to vote established uh, in the 19th Amendment. It passed in 1919 and ratified in 1920, guaranteeing women the right to vote. And then in 1965, we had the passage of the Voting Rights Act that was signed into law by President Lyndon Johnson. And then SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, that gutted this decision in 2013. 
So here we are today. We are seeing every value and principle that Dr. King stood for and fought for, as well as all of those who participated in that movement. We're seeing those shredded right before our eyes. So if we're going to make any meaningful progress towards eradicating racism, hate, inequality, injustice, it's going to take every one of us, not just the commission, not just the legislature, but all of us as citizens and as communities. What that means in my mind is that we as individuals are going to have to look inside ourselves, see and understand the plight of others, their needs and their desires. And then we as individuals and communities will have to step out of ourselves and do what we know is right for the rest of our people. We have to realize that no one person or one group of persons is superior to any other group. That is a must if we are going to make any progress. We can't have any further backsliding. You see what's happening in Congress today. As Dr. King so eloquently stated, all we say to America, be true to what you said on paper in order for us to carry on his legacy and to make this celebration even more meaningful. We have to do what we said on paper. Thank you for that. And that that's a, slides nicely into a question that uh, was submitted that says, How can ordinary Mainers like me support you in your efforts, especially in short-term, real-world, practical ways? For for instance, is there current legislation we should be advocating for, and what's the best way to do that? All uh, five of you uh, can weigh in on that if you'd like. I'll put in one last plug for LD 1626, um, sponsored by Representative Rachel Hubbard Ross, uh, supported by all the Wabanaki nations in Maine. And for more information, you can go to WabanakiAlliance.com. We have really helpful, frequently asked questions and uh, toolkits and, and how to take action on that bill. Well, one thing I would like to add is that people have to participate in the process uh, as it is, warts and all. We can't just focus on the presidential race. We have to focus on legislative races. We have to focus on school board races. When it comes time to vote, take it upon yourself to find out what the issues are, get yourselves to the poll, and get your neighbors and friends to the polls. As far as making progress, it's going to take that type of active participation by all of us. And how about uh, addressing or contacting members of the legislature, the governor's office, even the attorney general's office, I guess, even though you're not directly involved in the lawmaking uh, legislative process, uh, Mr. Attorney General. But uh, advice for people who want to get more involved and advocate for the issues that you've been talking about today. Uh, I think that uh, just to add something, I think you raise a good point, John. For those who would like to stay in touch with what's happening at the state level in terms of legislation, um, there's an easy way to do that by going to the Maine State Legislature website um, and signing up as an interested party 
um, in which you would receive updates from each of our uh, joint standing committees on uh, what's taking place um, at the legislature. It's an easy way for you not to have to chase after material, but have an emails come to you about what's what's going on. And you can access the calendar uh, through that website as well. You know, I would say that, and I would echo Representative Evans' uh, remarks that, you know, at the very local level, making sure that you know, you know, who serves on your select board, um, who's on the town council, uh, school board, uh, making sure that um, you um, are engaged at that level, but also, you know, the greatest threat to us right now, I think, to answer your previous question, instead of this being a celebratory day, the greatest threat to our democracy um, is in the voter suppression uh, efforts that have been taking place in states all across this country. I would suggest to people that they get in touch with Senator Collins immediately because the um, Freedom to Vote Act and the John R. Lewis uh, Voting Act, those, those are um, ways in which our democracy uh, moves forward. And without the right to vote, um, we we have no democracy. At the state level, um, a colleague, uh, Representative Teresa Peirce, uh, is sponsoring a bill that looks at the integrity of our elections and election um, uh, administration. I think it's LD1779, if folks want to look at that. But protecting the right to vote, making sure that people can cast their ballots without intimidation, moving our democracy forward uh, in that in that way is of primary importance. So get involved in that. I would say that also in addition to 1626, Representative Rian Newell is sponsoring LD906, which uh, will um, allow Passamaquoddy tribal members access to clean water. And it's very, very basic level. Access to clean water uh, should be uh, the number one concern of, of folks here in Maine, that all for all Mainers to have access to clean water, a very basic right, uh, should, uh, if, should you want to uh, get involved, I, I would suggest that you uh, contact Representative Noel and then contact um, all of your uh, state legislators and ask them to make sure that LD906 moves forward as well. I have a list of other bills that I could certainly give you that protect all Mainers and move all Mainers forward. Um, you can look it up online, but the Sixth Amendment Center issued a report to the state legislature in the last term, and it talked about access to justice. It talked about the need for Maine, um, which does not have a public defense system, to uh, pilot a public defense system. Everyone should have access, equal access, unfettered access to justice. And so learn about the Sixth Amendment Center's report to the state of Maine. Uh, in which it uh, talked about the main commission for indigent legal services being funded. I know that Attorney General Fry is well aware of this aspect of, of work before us. Um, we, we did take one baby step forward in funding um, MCILS this, this past year, but not enough is being done to make sure that all Mainers have access to justice. And the last thing I would say is um, in the next week or so, the state legislature is going to take on a letter, uh, a veto by uh, Governor Mills that will deny farm workers the right to organize. Um, this is at its very basic human right that you should be able to organize and speak up about any atrocities, any uh, inequities that are happening within uh, your workplace. We all have access to that. Farm workers deserve the same kind of of protections, and I hope that Mainers will take a look. Uh, it was LD151 sponsored by Representative Tom Harnett. That is a, a human rights issue of our time, um, and I hope that folks will pay attention to that. I have a long list of other bills, but sign up for the uh, interested parties list for the Maine State Legislature, and you'll learn about 
um, a lot of the other work taking place this year. Thank you, John, for that indulgence. And John, if I could just uh, add in, I think, briefly uh, to address the question uh, and to also just be thinking about how we might look at this day, not just as a celebration of the individual, but also in recognizing that his his work was somebody who just did not take what was given to him as the answer, who didn't wait for things to happen. You know, Dr. King, through nonviolence, civil disobedience, right? Like it was to do the work that needed to be done, not being complacent, not accepting what it is that was provided and working to make that change. And so to the extent that folks who are engaged here today can continue with that engagement, please remember that engagement takes different forms that are not mutually exclusive. Voting, right? Make sure you get out and you vote because it is so important that you register that. Um, register that. You know, something that Dr. Evans didn't mention, uh, but I was on, I think, the same meeting that Ambassador Dana was on. We were reminded recently that that tribal members here in the state of Maine couldn't vote in state elections until 1967, I think it was, 68. Um, so we are not that far removed from a very clear disenfranchisement. So uh, get out, vote, and and make sure you're you're heard that way. Join organizations, right? Like the NAACP, uh, the Bangor chapter of the NAACP, or join, you know, with the ACLU, or join uh, with, with a group that will help promote what it means to promote justice uh, here in our state. Don't wait for somebody else to do it, right? I mean, don't wait for for Representative Ross to do it, don't wait for Ambassador Newell to do it, or David, or or Representative Evans, don't wait for me to do it, don't wait for the governor to do it. Get out and affect the change that you want to see, and support and encourage reporting. You know, something that uh, we touched a little bit on, but I think is very important. All of the systems that might be set up to help process what it is that we need to do, they need to be informed. And they need to be informed by individuals who are sharing their experience, who are talking about how a certain policy or statute or practice is disadvantaging them because of their race, their ethnicity, their gender. If we don't hear those voices, if we don't go out, by the way, and support, encourage, and listen to those voices, we're not going to have the informed um, policies that we need to have. So to the question of you know, how can we learn uh, or, or how can we reflect more on Dr. King did? How can we uh, be involved? There is no one way to engage. It's it's only that you have to engage. And so whatever way you feel comfortable. Um, I know all of us here take a lot of different calls. Uh, we uh, A lot of different emails, a lot of different community events. And I can only speak for myself, I guess, but I imagine you might see some nods. We all carry with us what it is that we hear from you. And uh, we hope that we're doing right in trying to make Maine uh, a, a more supportive, engaged uh, society. Thank you, and thank you all for that. We have one question uh, that, uh, even though we are short on time, I, I think is important to pose because it has been such a point of contention around the country, and that is the issue of education in schools, exp- uh, educating uh, students about American history the real American history or the, the, the unspoken histories that we know have been ignored. Now, Maine, thanks to uh, Donna Loring, has a, a great law that has been in place for I'm not sure how many years that requires the teaching of history and culture of Maine's Wabanaki peoples. 
Maine Native, I think it's called the Maine Native American Act. Uh, Molly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. Obviously, there's uh, a need to address the issues of Maine's uh, of Maine's other marginalized communities historically, regardless of the size or extent of their presence in Maine. And yet, we know that there's a lot of pushback that's taking place. We're reading about it nationally, and we know where it's happening in Maine too. Do you want any of you like to address the role of of that in uh, as a state priority going forward to make sure that perhaps we are able to incorporate the, the teaching of the full teaching of Maine's uh, history uh, in a way similar to what has been accomplished so far through the uh, Maine Native American Act. Please, Representative. Well, I, I, I think that, you know, at some point, and, and, and we, we have to be honest with ourselves, we have things in our histories across the board that are shameful. That does not mean that people should not know about those. Because if you don't know about those uh, things, you don't learn about them in school, you're likely to repeat those types of uh, uh, problems. So it's important and it's, it's gonna be painful to some people, but from where I stand and where I see the landscape, it is absolutely imperative that we tell the truth about what happened as far as our, the beginnings of our nation that led, leads us to where we are today. We can no longer sugarcoat this or avoid it. When you avoid things, you don't understand what's going on. And in situations like that, we are not making ourselves better. We become better by facing the facts as they are. The facts are not going to change and you can't hide the facts. So the best thing to do is to have the discussion. We can debate things back and forth, but at least have the discussion. Yeah, and I would quickly add that I just want to thank my colleagues in the state legislature who um, bravely after you know, 17 years, I think it is 14 or 17 years, um, made sure that our public education system was publicly funded at the, um, at the level of 55%, which has been mandated by the voter. And that is just uh, one demonstration. Access to high quality education is a priority uh, here in the state of Maine. But I would add that we passed LD 1664 last uh, year, which um, integrates African-American history with an emphasis on Maine's African-American history uh, and the history of genocide um, into our curriculum that was modeled after the work of uh, the Honorable uh, Donna Loring, the Honorable Donald Soctoma, and others uh, who uh, really led the charge uh, to ensure that the history, the true history of our beginnings were being taught to all Maine students. And so uh, we're really proud, uh, John, that that history um, uh, is being taught in our schools now. I think Portland Public School System has taken a lead within the state of ensuring that Wabanaki history and education was being taught. And they are taking the lead, um, I'm proud to say, in making sure that the integration of African-American studies and the history of genocide uh, are, are in our school system as well. So it's a start. It's by no means, by no means is it 
um, over. I know uh, Speaker Fecto this year has a bill in to look at labor history. There's been attempts, uh, certain attempts justifiably to make sure that the true history of LGBTQ is within our uh, curriculum and women's history uh, is in it. And, you know, unfortunately, we're at this place where we have to fight for each one of these true histories to be incorporated into our education system. And that's because it's been written by one, only by one um, experience and one lens. So I appreciate whoever asked that question because we are working on it. And I'm proud to say that steps have been taken uh, recently to make sure that true history is being taught. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in really, really quickly because this is, I, I think, probably the, the one area that I, I encounter on almost a weekly a weekly basis. And so what, what I think is really important to, to highlight, especially with what Rachel was saying, whether it's, it's Women's History Month, whether it's Native American um, and, and Alaskan um, Indian Heritage Month, Latin American Hispanic Heritage Month, or Black History Month, I think when history is taught um, regarding these communities, it, it's taught from almost a, a deficit perspective. Uh, I think, uh, especially with Black history, like Black history is taught from this perspective of slavery and then civil rights and and almost a perspective of, of being less than. I think it's really critical that when we are having these discussions and when we are incorporating, you know, just these diverse communities into the curriculum, that it's it's not done just during February or just during November or, or, or just during, you know, September and Pride Month and, and, and all these other calendar points, but it's integrated into the curriculum and normalized um, that there's diverse communities and diverse representation in you know science and English and all of these other subjects that are taught instead of having education about other people that go to your schools and other communities that represent your you know your neighborhood having that be a standalone type of curriculum that's not part of the the core materials that are shared. Well, folks, I really appreciate your input. I thank you all in both in public and as advocates. But most importantly, thanks to all of you for for your interest and hopefully commitment to advancing causes of civil rights, racial, and social justice. You're essential to making the changes that the folks today have been talking about. You have been listening to a discussion of the state of civil rights in Maine on WERU Community Radio. This pre-recorded event was co-hosted by the Greater Bangor Area Branch of the NAACP and the University of Maine Alumni Association as part of Eastern and Central Maine's 2022 Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration. The 2022 MLK Day virtual event can be seen in its entirety on the Maine Alumni YouTube channel. Comments on today's panel discussion on WERU Community Radio may be sent to news at weru.org with MLK in the subject line. Thanks for listening.